0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivibhagni and today in Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Carlos Reyes and Gil Addo. Carlos and Gil co-founded Rubicon MD, which is a web-based e-consult service. Carlos serves as the president while Gil drives strategy and vision as the CEO. They share a passion for leveraging technology to drive change in healthcare and improving access to the right medical expertise to positively influence patient outcomes. They also happen to both be alumni of HBS, with Carlos being a grad of 2014 and Gil 2011. I was 2016. And so when I was starting osmosis and growing it at HBS, I heard about both of them and, and what they were doing with Rubicon MD. So it's really cool to have you both on and to see all the progress you guys have made. Thank you for joining us. Decided to be here. Thanks for having us. So can you start by telling our audience a bit more about you both individually your backgrounds and then what inspired you to co-found Rubicon MD and we'll start with Gil and then go to Carlos in terms of backgrounds and then either one of you can share the share the founding story sure I'll start and then flip to Carlos who can
1: share his background and continue so I started the company with Carlos 7 years ago background before that I'm originally from Connecticut have a father from Ghana uh, mother from Barbados so both parents, immigrants, you know, growing up was very much kind of math, science inclined. And so uh, gravitated towards fields like that and ended up studying biomedical engineering in undergrad. Really wanted to leave the science side of things and understand a little bit more about kind of business and how those things intersected. How did the things that I had been researching in a lab get commercialized? So I applied to business school out of college was told to wait a couple of years before coming and so I uh, had a deferred admission and went and worked for 2 years before actually going to business school spent a couple of years working for Xerox doing investor relations really cool experience seeing how a large publicly traded company kind of manages you know Wall Street expectations and then went to HBS with the hope of really getting deeper in healthcare and really thinking about how I built something that was founded on access to care so I had personal experience that got me really passionate about access to health care. I had a grandmother growing up who developed a brain tumor, and she traveled to Boston for surgery, from Barbados to Boston, and then spent five years going back and forth on all the management of the tumor. So I was passionate about things that enhanced access to care that allowed people who otherwise would not be there to get access to the right expertise in their community. That's what really got me inspired to work with Carlos to build something. Left business school and went and worked for a couple of years until I could actually afford to take the plunge. And I was a consultant in the life sciences space for a firm called Putnam Associates, working primarily with large pharma biotech clients. And I did that for a couple of years before starting the business.
2: I'm Carlos. My background, I'm originally from Spain, born and raised in Madrid, similar to Gil, the idea to start the company is very personal to me. I had an accident when I was a kid. I had an accident in my left eye. I was playing with other kids. We were playing with slingshots, and I got hit in the eye, and that triggered three very difficult years with the complications, multiple surgeries, and unfortunately, clinicians they didn't have access to the right expertise. That led to you know suboptimal decision making. Ended up losing sight in my left eye. And that was a pretty tragic experience, pretty devastating episode of my life for me and my family. But that's also what gave me the passion and the energy to want to be part of the solution and to build, innovate in the space and build solutions so that all the people didn't have to go through this. And then went on to um, become a biomedical engineer, did studying between Spain and the Netherlands, and then moved to Pennsylvania, um, started my career at Siemens Medical, working on their EMR product, which... Years later, was acquired by by Cerner, and then I've been in tech and, and, and health tech interchanging those two, and then in 2012 moved to Boston to start business school at Harvard, and a few months after that, I went to this hack and medicine event uh, at MIT, and uh, Gil was pitching the idea, and it really resonated because a lot of the things we see, a lot of the innovations, really only touch a tiny sliver of the population. And this whole idea around innovating for primary care clinicians was, one, feasible. I could see myself executing on it, but two, made a lot of sense because there was a lot of evidence that you know robust primary care always results into better population health metrics. And the concept behind supercharging primary care with this mission to democratize access to medical expertise sounded like a perfect combination. I mean that's fascinating. Thank you both. It's always good to know the backgrounds of the
0: people who are behind these innovations. And, and in your case, it's definitely personal. We've ha- we've had several guests on Ray's Line, including Tammy's son from Carrot for fertility, who talks about her own struggles trying to get fertility treatment and that led to her creating Carrot. So it's great to hear that you have personal experience and interest in in democratizing access. So can you tell our audience, which primarily consists of current and future healthcare professionals, what exactly Rubicon does? I know you have a suite
2: of products, but what are you doing? How are, are you supercharging primary care access? Happy to get started and let Gil chime in. So we we are, as Shiv said, we are an e platform. And this basically allows any primary care clinician at any time in the day to access our platform and ask a question really to any specialty and about any of their patients. And right now we've built a national panel of specialists that covers 140 specialties and subspecialties So, you know, think about it, whatever the question you have, you can submit it and we'll make sure that we assign it to top specialists across the country that they've been trying to provide educational responses that really help PCPs make more informed decisions. So they'll get back within typically two to three hours with their impressions and recommendations. And that really supports the PCP, their decision-making process. You would ask, what are the things that you've seen? uh, What are the outcomes you've seen on, on your platform? So PCPs report the outcome after they've received the responses. And what's been pretty incredible is that about 75 to 80% of the times, PCPs report a significant improvement in their care plans. And to us, that's the most important thing, really supporting PCPs drive better outcomes in primary care. On top of that, we'll see that about 70% of the times, they indicate that they have learned something new. So they're not only helping you know, that one patient about that particular case where they're b- building capacity for future patient care. And by the way, getting CME for that, which is a great perk for clinicians. And all of that results in roughly about half of the e-consults resulting in avoiding what would otherwise have been an unnecessary referral, diagnostic, or procedure. So it also helps reduce the total cost of care. But again, the most important thing we do is we, we support clinicians in their practice and it, it helps them feel more satisfaction. So it does address a lot of the burnout. And when they share with their patients that they're doing this, patients are universally very impressed that their clinician is really going the extra mile on their behalf. That's
0: fantastic. Primary care is evolving quite a bit. I mean, even Harvard has a like this innovation center for primary care. We've seen a lot of Primary care clinics models pop up from Iora to carbon. We had Aaron Bali on the podcast recently from Carbon Health. Would love to hear, you know, what your vision is for the future of primary care. Is it still going to be medical doctors, DOs, or do you think scope of practice will will change and like include nurse practitioners and PAs? Are they on your platform already? Would love to hear, you know, how you guys are seeing the evolution of primary care.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to like to provide thoughts on where we are in the evolution of primary care. I think primary care historically has been kind of the uh, the redheaded stepchild is the right analogy of the clinical world where people gravitated towards specialty and kind of a few brave souls kind of went into primary care. And I think that now there's a shift in an understanding and an acceptance of the fact that primary care is really the foundation of a well-run healthcare system. And I think that's like the the broad movement to value-based care, which has you know very much bipartisan support, is really about how do you enable better primary care as a way to better bridge the connection to patients and as a way to create a quarterback that supports the, the member. So I think just a clear, clear push to make primary care do more. And so if you're going to do that in a world in which there's a shortage of primary care clinicians then you've got to figure out how do you enable that. And so I think there are a couple trends that are there. One is kind of enabling physician extenders, nurse practitioners, PAs, advanced you know practitioners, enabling them to be able to do a lot more. And so I think you're going to see that continue. About a third of the clinicians on our platform are nurse practitioners or physician's assistants. And it's a great tool and resource to support them as they actually become key pieces of primary care. And really, we call them primary care clinicians because the nurse practitioners and PAs are enabled to do just as much. And so I think you'll see that continue because you can more or less double the workforce in primary care through that. And then the second piece is building tools and services around them. So groups like Iora Health, Iora, oddly enough, we talk about kind of when we started and you know, you being a business client, I think they were our first client, and it was right at that time is maybe it was twenty fourteen actually. So they they were the early client, and their vision is how do you build out all the services around that and use technology to extend what primary care can do. And so I think we have, and we will continue to see a lot of the tech enabled services and those providers really building around making primary care you know more powerful. How do you use technology to supercharge what they can do? And we're part of, you know, kind of feeding that trend as well.
0: So we've seen that COVID has, you know, by maybe one, if not two orders of magnitude, improved access or improved utilization of telehealth services. And clearly, you all are extending primary care clinicians to go and make especially consults in the 140 areas, as you mentioned. You know, how has COVID affected Rubicon MD? Can you comment on that? And then what are some of the lasting changes you think? Will happen to the healthcare system as a result of COVID.
2: Happy to get started. I think we've definitely seen a very unique year with COVID, forcing a lot of the practices to go virtual pretty much overnight. And the explosion in terms of digital health adoption, both for patients but also for clinicians. I think it was the the response has been different. I think one of the things that has been pretty clear to everyone is that. Value based care models have been much more resilient to the transition. And, and I'm not talking about financial resiliency. It's also clinically, any of our partners who had long relationships with their patients and had enough medical history, they were able to flip to virtual pretty much overnight and continue to do a lot of the things they were doing without we a lot of need to develop you know, new platforms. And you, you could even do a large portion of it, even if it was just through phone calls. So I think that has taken any group who was doing value-based care and has started to move them to this category of virtual first, value-based primary care, which I think holds a lot of promise. And then on the other side, you have the more traditional telemedicine companies where they had been for a while virtual first, but they were not doing quite full-blown primary care. It was more episodic type of consult. And I think we're seeing a big transition. If you look at the number of companies who've, you know, raised capital or or merged or or you know even being created in the last few months, and are are now trying to become virtual primary care, that's definitely a, a very interesting trend. And we are working with providers on both ends—the ones who were broken and mortar first and now are doing more things virtually, and the ones who are born virtual first. There is a non-trivial part in that transition, which is. Having a platform is the first part, but building the culture of primary care is not that easy, right? Following evidence based medicine, leveraging diverse care teams, being able to engage our patients, that's a non trivial transition. But I think that in a way, the genie's out of the bottle and the power of doing virtual first, coupled with comprehensive primary care, it is incredibly powerful to not only provide a better patient experience, but actually to very effectively and efficiently manage more and more things like chronic conditions. So I think we we expect to see a lot of growth and probably those are the two categories, the traditionally high performing groups that are now doing more things virtually and the traditional telemedicine companies that are now trying to become virtual primary care. So definitely a very interesting time to be in this space and we're proud to be able to support clinicians and on both sides of the spectrum.
0: So, Gil, you recently wrote a blog post on whether telehealth could be saved from systemic racism. Would love to hear some initiatives that you're driving to address and ensure equal access of your platform for communities of color and low-income households.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Just to summarize it really briefly for folks, and the thrust was that um, all the things that we saw, you know, early pandemic and all the outcomes through COVID and mortality rates and all of those things. And then all the things we saw around racial injustice and systemic racism and things that, you know, started to bubble up and become really front and center through George Floyd, they're all the same problem. And that was kind of the, you know, the thing that we've all started to understand is that, you know, systemic racism and the things that affect communities of color color, have led to the disproportionate impact of COVID. And so that was kind of core. And I think people knew and understand that, but the second piece of it wasn't really being spoken about, which is what Carlos started to highlight, which is that basically the world just moved to virtual overnight. And I think people understand in education, what that means is that if you don't have access to a lot of necessary services to be able to conduct school virtually, then you're not gonna be able to learn and you're gonna be left behind. But telehealth is the same thing. So we've coined this idea the social determinants of telehealth, which are all the things that you need to have in place to be able to do it. You need the same things. You, you can't have three generations living in an apartment and expect to have a very good virtual behavioral health visit. You can't have one without internet, without a device. So all of those things on the patient side, and then on a clinical side, at the same time that we were seeing the move to virtual and all of these services ramping up to 70, 80%, 90% virtual, we saw clinics that support the safety net and Medicaid populations essentially cutting funding to virtual services. And so you need a trusted physician who's enabled in order to do this. And so a lot of that actually contributed and people just weren't talking about how this was impacting. We saw it firsthand. You know, we were supporting clinics in Northern California, stood up about 400 primary care clinicians to be able to do e-consults because there, are no, there were no physical referral pathways through COVID. And then they needed to figure out how can they support and continue to do this. And the health plan, which in California budgets were being cut at the same time Medicaid was expanding, the health plan you know, was saying we're cutting costs and we're actually clawing back budgets. So I understand all the structural challenges, but we really needed to start the conversation about how do you enable the safety net so that they can continue to receive the right access to care. And so we've launched the telehealth equity project we've got a national campaign in partnership with Health Tech for Medicaid and the diversity innovation hub at Mount Sinai Mm -hmm. to really lead this work. And there are people doing great work in pockets. And we really wanted to take those pockets of work and concentrate them and amplify them and really try to create meaningful change. So we set a bold goal to impact a million lives across the country and communities of color. And then we're just getting started now and seeing really, really incredible work and results. We've done some uh, great work in Harlem,
0: and we're launching in other communities right now across the country. Well, that's incredible. Thank you for the leadership on that. And I, I really love that term. I hadn't heard that. Everyone knows social determinants of health, but social determinants of telehealth is very interesting. So I know we're coming up in time. So the last question I have for each of you is: What advice would you give to someone considering a career in healthcare today, or, or our audience, which primarily comprises people who are already well on their ways to becoming primary care clinicians and, and other types of clinicians? I'll go
1: first. You know, it's a really, really tough time to be entering medicine, but it's also maybe the most rewarding time because there's such an appreciation, there's such a need, there's so you're doing the work, like, you know, they showed all of these memes and stories and everything Or early in pandemic. Like this is, you know, our generation's war and those frontline workers and the physicians are, you know, the people that are leading the fight. And so I think it's a really rewarding time. I think my advice would be to think more broadly than just the immediate clinical training and really try to understand the context. We've been talking as I said about the social determinants of telehealth, we think that there's conversations around behavioral mental health in that crisis that isn't happening right now. And people, a lot of clinicians, you know, end up having to train and teach themselves how to manage these patients with these challenges on an ongoing basis. So I, I would really encourage clinical leaders who are starting now to kind of think about the broader context and build that into how they, you know, practice and don't lose sight of it.
2: And I would 100% echo what Gil said. The only thing I would add is definitely that my recommendation would be for folks to follow their passion. I think there is an incredible amount of opportunity of things to do in healthcare. It will be hard, really, irrespective of what you're doing. There'll be great times and and very difficult times. For anyone who's looking to, you know, go the entrepreneurship route, it will be very hard, but at the same time, it's incredibly rewarding. And I think that, at least in, in, in my experience, Keeping in mind that we were always doing this for a mission that we were excited about and that we were learning and developing has always been a great motivator. So I would say if you follow your passion, there will be enough opportunities and you'll eventually get to the, to the right one. So even if it's not the most intuitive, even if it's not what you know people are expecting of you right now, I think that people who follow their passion will end up being very successful in a wide variety of metrics.
0: Thank you both for that advice. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you're doing to raise line and improve healthcare capacity through Rubicon. So thanks again for just taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Take care. Thanks, guys. Take care. And with that, I'm Shek Raghlani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together.